Let's pray as we begin this morning. Lord, help us to hear your word and be not only hearers, but doers of your word. For we ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, when I started preaching here last year, I thought to myself, well, why don't we tackle some books that typically don't get exposited often in churches? Things that uh, may be a little strange or um, a little different, maybe. Well, me and my big mouth. Because as we've gotten into First and now Second Peter, I've realized the reason why these books aren't often preached is because they're very difficult books. And they're difficult, I think, for several reasons. And Second Peter may just be the most difficult of them all, at least in the New Testament. But they're difficult for several reasons, and I think first they're difficult because, well, Second Peter's difficult, I should say, because it's a bizarre and mysterious and kind of just downright weird book. Peter talks about evil angels being bound in chains the earth catching on fire at the end of all things, stars vaporizing in the heavens. He talks about curses from pagan sorcerers and donkeys giving prophetic utterances. And then he talks about jackals returning to their own vomit, hogs rolling around in their own refuse. Second Peter is a weird book, and it's difficult for that reason. But second, it's also difficult because it challenges us. It challenges us to faith and obedience. And it confronts us, those of us who have corrupt theology and twisted lifestyles. And so the pitfalls for Christians are everywhere. Not only is this life hard and filled with suffering, which is what we saw as we went through 1 Peter in the past few months, but on top of all that, in 2 Peter we learn that there are false teachers out there who say things like Jesus' resurrection didn't really happen. And so consequently, Christ coming at the end of all things in earth to, in judgment, that's, that's not going to happen either. And so their disbelief and the reality of that leads to disobedience. But they still use empty religious talk. And that's what Peter's confronting. Empty religious talk church membership, just vague spirituality. But they use it for a greedy and selfish end so that they can get sex and money and power. And so 2 Peter is not only difficult to us because it's so strange, it's difficult to us because it commands in us an active faith that departs from the things of this world. And so in the middle of these difficult issues that call us to first trust in God despite our doubts, and to obey Him, on the other hand, and His commands despite our desires, right in the middle of that, Peter invites us to share in something far greater than our deepest doubts or our wildest desires could fathom. Because Peter invites us to share in the very life of God with God. But what does that mean? And how is that even possible? When Jesus redeemed us from the curse of sin and death by His cross, He invited all of us to pull up a seat at the banquet table 
of God, to be at peace with God, to be friends now with God, and to share in the feast of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God wants us. He wants us to share in His divine life and nature, Peter writes. And we can start sharing in it right now. It's possible right now to share in God's divine nature. And it's possible only because of Jesus. And we can start sharing in it right now because of what Jesus has done and who He is for us. But we can start sharing it also by living a life of godliness and a life of goodness, patterning our own lives after the life of Jesus here on earth. And so Baptist New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner says, the Spirit leads us to a changed life of moral beauty. Peter never considered that Christ's salvation could be untethered from our moral transformation. Let me say that again. He says that Peter never considered that Christ's salvation for us could be completely untethered from the Spirit's moral transformation in us. In other words, when we say we believe the Gospel, then we prove that we believe it by us starting to live it out. By us putting to death the things in us, the, the, the passions of the flesh that would cause us to live selfishly, to seek our own desires, to push away anybody else, to, to take revenge on our enemies, to, to hate those that hate us. We believe the Gospel's true, and that's proof when those things start to die off in us. There's no such thing as believing the Gospel of grace and not becoming a more gracious person yourself. There's no such thing. That is a totally unfamiliar concept to Peter. And so to be a Christian then is not just a cultural, nominal thing. You're not Christian because you're born in America or you're born in the Bible Belt or you grew up in a Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian church. That doesn't make you a Christian. For Peter, to be a Christian means that you live a life that's so transformed by the good news that you've received by the Jesus that you worship, that you start looking like Him, even if that takes a lifetime to move you towards Him. This is what 2 Peter is all about. It's about our sharing in God's own life with Him and consequently with each other. But that sounds kind of strange to us. The idea of sharing in God's life or maybe the more... The more um, the more typical way that it's, it's talked about of being partakers of the divine nature, being participants in God's divine life. That's not something that Baptists, we talk about often. Partaking and participating in God's life. But this is exactly what the young Swiss theologian in the early 1900s, Karl Barth, was talking about when he said, when we do this, we enter the strange new world of the Bible. See, Barth grew up in Europe in the early 1900s, where the Bible had simply become a kind of historical relic. It was just a religious curiosity. Sure, it had interesting moral lessons, but it was no different than Aesop's fables. It was no different than 
Grimm's fairy tales. It was just an oddity, a cultural oddity that had some sort of shaping effect on the, the common language and ideas of the, the Germanic and the Swiss people. But it was a dead book belonging to the ancient past. That's what, that's what uh, uh, scholars of religion thought. That's what pastors in Germany and Switzerland thought at the time. And, you know, we, we look down at the we look down our nose at kind of that old German modernism that, you know, it's just taking the Bible as some sort of, you know, textbook that's no different from the Iliad or the Odyssey or anything like that. But I kind of feel like in our own Bible Belt culture here in the South, we almost treat the Bible the same as they did. We treat the Bible like it's a nice little oddity from Grandma's day. We treat faith like it's just a polite little tradition where we say excuse me and thank you and all that. And we treat Christ like He's just a a nice guy that we happen to see on Sunday morning. But for Bart, who ferociously denounced the spiritual apathy of his own day, the Bible was the living, breathing, transforming Word of God that must be read preached, believed, and obeyed with the utmost seriousness. To take the Bible seriously then is to step into its strange new world. To let the the, the truth of Scripture wash over you and transform your life. When we read these ancient stories in the Old Testament as we've been doing together as a church and our daily Bible reading, we're not just reading some moralistic tales, we are stepping into the lives of these characters, letting their sins and our sins commingle in such a way where we see how we're no better than them and how they're representative of who we actually are universally. We step into that strange new world of the Bible because ultimately, when we go there, that's where we find the God who delivers Israel from slavery to sin and death, who raised Jesus up from the dead on the third day. It's where we encounter a God that is alive and real and active as He is in our own world today, where He speaks and delivers and still raises from the dead through the Word of Christ and the breath of His Spirit. That's the strange new world of the Bible. And all of this stuff, all this stuff is why I've called our sermon today the Apocalypse of Peter. That sounds dramatic, doesn't it? It's supposed to. The Apocalypse of Peter. Now, in our cultural understanding, or our cultural misunderstanding, the word apocalypse means like a, it's an end times kind of scenario. So it's, we, when we hear the word apocalypse, when you hear that or read that in an article on, online or in the newspaper or something, people have envisioned with that an apocalypse is something like a zombie outbreak or an alien invasion or an, uh, uh, some sort of disastrous storm that uh, engulfs the planet. And, and civilization as we know it collapses. That's what people think apocalypse means. And they get that, I think, from the book of Revelation. But the apocalypse of John, the book of Revelation, Revelation and apocalypse are the same word. What apocalypse simply means 
is a revealing of something that's true, that's hidden to our eyes. It's not a disaster, it's a revealing. Now sometimes that revelation has disastrous effects perhaps, but an apocalypse is a revealing of reality, not from our limited perspective, but from God's divine, eternal perspective. See, the Scripture is filled with apocalypses. Jesus being revealed in the Word, the world is an apocalypse of God amongst us. It is a revelation of what's real and what our eyes have been blinded to by our own limited human potential and by our own sinfulness that keeps us warped and bound and curved in on ourselves. And so, this morning we are talking about an apocalypse of truth. It's revealing to us, this book, that, and it, it's exposing that what our world thinks is strength and power and life, namely to, to just live for yourself and money and sex and power, all of that is just weakness and death. That's what the Scriptures reveal. It's revealing to us that the Bible, while it's a bizarre book, while Peter's a strange, weird book, and, and the whole of Scriptures are a complicated collections of, of genealogies and laments and prophecies and whatever else, this is actually the place where God chooses to speak to dead sinners and they come to life. As Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. So when we open this Word, He says to us, church, arise. It's where we get from Fanny Crosby, the old Baptist hymn writer, that beautiful line that she sang in her song. This is where, when we come to the Bible, this is where we get a foretaste of glory divine. And so this morning, as we begin our summer sermon series through 2 Peter, I want us to get used to reading through and thinking about this book apocalyptically. Meaning that I want us to look at this book and our own life from God's perspective on reality. From God's perspective on truth. Not our own limited, warped, skewed, ground-level perception, but from His eternal, divine perspective. And in order to do that well, I want to spend our remaining time talking about the context of 2 Peter and rereading his opening words in light of that. So, Peter gives us himself throughout this letter an idea of when this letter was written and for what purpose. Now, in first or rather in in, in 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 13 through 14, Peter makes an allusion to his impending death. So he says that he is laying aside his bodily tent, or that's going to be coming for him soon. And scholars believe, and church tradition suggests, that Peter was shortly thereafter crucified upside down in Rome because he didn't count himself worthy to be crucified like his Savior. He was crucified upside down in Rome under the power of the Roman Emperor Nero. So this would indicate to us that this letter was perhaps sent in the mid-60s of the first century. But again, Peter's a strange book, and it's unlike most of the books in the New Testament. Some scholars believe that due to some subtle hints that uh, indicate maybe a, a, 
uh, a knowledge of things that came after this time, that maybe this letter was released posthumously, actually. That Peter himself was not the person to send it, but Peter, the people that he had taught, like Mark and Silvanus, those people, maybe they released this letter afterwards. Well, how is that possible? Well, that's actually not all that strange of an occurrence, even in the Bible. When we read the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 40 through 66, the latter half of the book, it's very clear by some clues that we read in Isaiah that this was probably compiled by Isaiah's disciples and 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 collected and 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 and, and written and, and sent to uh, the synagogues throughout ancient Israel. And so just like when a book gets released in our day, and then maybe 10, 20 years goes by, and then there's an updated uh, there's an updated copy with some additional material or uh, a kind of introduction by uh, an editor or something like that. You'll often see that. That's what people think maybe happens in Peter's letter here. So maybe Peter's teachings have been brought together and edited and released in his name at a later date. And so that maybe this book is one of the latest books in the Old Testament. Maybe even released after John's revelation. And so maybe it was sent out to the churches in the 80s or 90s. Peter's a strange book. There's a lot of things that scholars like to debate about it. But whoever ended up publishing Peter's letter and his writings, and whenever they ended up sending it as a collection of his theological thoughts, whenever that happened, the audience and the message was the exact same. He wrote to the scattered, mainly Gentile Christians of Asia Minor, like he did last time. The people that were in political and social exile from one another. And in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 of 2 Peter, he writes this, clarifying why he's writing the letter. He says, Dear friends, this is now the second letter I've written to you, and in both letters I want to stir up your sincere understanding by way of reminder, so that you recall the words previously spoken by the holy prophets, and the commands of our Lord and Savior given through your apostles. So why did Peter draft up this letter? What what was he talking about towards the end of his life? What was was the final thing that he wanted to, to, to go out on? The last message that he preached? He wanted to encourage the beleaguered and tired and anxious and scattered Christians of Asia Minor and beyond even into our own day. Whoever read this letter on through, uh, through time, he wanted to stir up in them and us a sincere and earnest trust, he says. A trust in what? The words of the prophets and the teaching of the apostles about the commands of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter wanted us, whether we're reading the Old Testament prophets or the New Testament apostles, to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest, as the old Anglican prayer goes, the Bible that teaches us about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Peter wanted us to be a biblically literate people that read the Scripture so we encounter 
and re-encounter Jesus every single day. He wanted us to be driven back to the Scriptures, both Old and New Testament, to find the promises of God for us made true in Jesus. I see Peter here kind of like a grizzled old shepherd. I, I, I kind of, when I, I think of Peter at this point in the, the, the New Testament story, I, the one person that comes to mind is Robert Duvall's cattle rancher, Augustus McRae, from Lonesome Dove, the greatest Western of all time, and a, just a great miniseries to boot. I think of Peter because he's a little bit old, and he's a little bit crusty, and probably a little bit crude, knowing Peter. But in the end, he has a sincere and willing desire to lay down his life for his own herd and for the sake of his friends. He's loyal to the end. He's not polite. He's not necessarily refined. He's not sophisticated. But he speaks with a power and authority that, no, that tells you that what he has to say for you is worth serious consideration. Peter has given everything he could to shepherd Christians, even towards the end of his life, perhaps when he was in chains in Rome, right before his execution, dictating some of his thoughts, passing it along, and and, and praying that it would get into the right hands. He's, He's shepherding Christians with all his might back towards orthodoxy and orthopraxy, which is just to say right doctrine and right devotion believing true things, and living out those true things in the world. And the purpose of this letter is his attempt to gather his sheep together no matter where they may be scattered. The amazing thing about First and Second Peter is that he's writing not even to certain congregations or churches. He's writing to the Christians that because of the, the political machinations of Rome are scattered and hidden and afraid he is gathering to them together as sheep that have been scattered by wolves to come to sit not under, not under the shepherding of Peter, but under the shepherding of Christ. But make no mistake, the sheep are scattered, the flocks are divided. We see that heavily in our own day. The division of the church here in America and beyond because there are wolves in sheep's clothing. And they are satanically, quite literally satanically, trying to get us to disbelieve and disobey and disassociate from one another. And to that end, Pastor David Helms says that while uh, Peter's first letter was pastoral and comforting, Peter's second letter is polemical. It's confrontational. He was delighted and happy in the churches that were suffering in his first letter, and now he's angry at how they're being divided. And he's confronting them for that. And the false teachers that are dividing them scandalously are calling themselves Christians. But they want you to believe that this book is just a fairy tale with some nice moral fables inside. They want you to believe that the resurrection of dead bodies is just a metaphor for being a good person, 
by, by finding yourself renewed by a kind of a, a, a generic idea of love. I'll never forget reading, <clears throat> there's an American sem- seminary, which will go nameless. And it has a, a president that was interviewed by the New York Times just two or three years ago and talked about what Easter means. And this person was so apologetic about the, how embarrassing it is that Christians believe in a literal resurrection. Was tripping over themselves to say, well, you know, we re- we're sophisticated. We, have, you know, we go to nice, fancy, elite universities here in America and the UK. And we know that the resurrection is just a nice metaphorical story that helps us to be good and moral people. And the agnostic interviewer called this person on that kind of a response. They said, if all this is made up, then this is just interchangeable with whatever mythology that's out there. Christianity loses all its power if the resurrection isn't real. And it's funny to me that this agnostic reporter had more sense than a seminary president that was embarrassed that God supernaturally acts in the world. I've never understood this about Christians. That they can believe there's a God, that He creates everything from nothing, that He, he, puts, he puts souls in human body, He's, he, 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 he makes this vast world that's impossible to understand. We're just now discovering creatures at the bottom of the ocean we didn't even know existed. We discover new species of animals and plants all the time. We're uncovering civilizations around the world that just we didn't even know could have possibly existed. This universe is unfathomably large. We can believe that God is God of over all that, but He can't raise somebody from death? Why would we be so embarrassed to believe that? We believe that God is real, but He in no sense has a real impact, is active and alive. That the spiritual is just a metaphor? When we believe that, the problem is the promise of Christ's return to unleash His holy justice on the evil of this world, that also becomes a metaphor. And we become hopeless. Think, I, I think about this. The people in this world that suffer immeasurably at the hands of evil and wicked men and women in power that, are, that have their life and their family and their health and their sanity stripped away from them, that are humiliated and dehumanized, and Christians want to say, well, all you need is love. What terrible news Jesus is for them if He is not raised from the dead and if He will not return in holy and terrible judgment on this world. There is such evil in this country from the nicest and the most civilized and the cleanest and educated people are some of the wickedest. And we, so silly that we want to praise Power and celebrity and wealth as if it's just some great thing. When the God of the Bible confronts Israel for all the time, how all, all the, the philosophers and priests check their nails and 
and eat bonbons and just let their people in their society suffer immeasurably. It outrages God how we treat each other. And so it's no good news to us or to anybody else if all we're doing here is play acting. If we're just going through some kind of Bible Belt Southern tradition where this doesn't mean anything, that God doesn't speak through Scripture or answer prayer or save people or promise to come back and make all things right and new, then we just pack up and turn off the lights and take strip the copper from the air conditioners and go sell it and live happy lives. That's what's happening in Peter's day and that's what's happening in our own day. We're just going to church just makes us feel better. We, it makes us feel like we're moral and better people than whoever out there. It soothes our conscience for the bad stuff that we do to each other. It convinces us that we're not really bad people. That we can take advantage of whoever's body we want. That we can steal money from whoever we want. There's no consequence for that. We go to church and we're nice people. That's exactly the thing that Peter is preaching against. He's revealing that while we can put band-aids, while we can put a coat of paint over a rotting building or a band-aid over a bullet hole, he reveals to us that God will not be mocked. And he'll not be confused by these things. He'll expose in the end the things that we try to sweep under the rug. But this morning's passage shows us something beautiful. A much more beautiful reality than we could ever conjure up with our little religious imaginations. Where we pretend like we're good people all the time, we just strive to elevate ourselves to God, and that is impressive to Him somehow. No, what Peter reveals is that we're worse off than we could ever imagine, and God loves us more than we could ever know. In verse 1, Peter calls himself Simeon Peter, which is strange. He's been going by Peter for decades now. Why, why at the end of his life refer to himself as Simeon? Why does he use his old name and his new name together? Well, I think it's because Peter himself is thinking apocalyptically. What does that mean? Well, before he met Jesus, he was just Simeon. He was a loudmouth and cowardly fisherman that was always about his way or the highway. And that's what the world's view of him was. He is just, oh, that's just old Simeon. But God's view in Christ of Peter was that he wasn't a fisherman, he was a fisher of men. He was one that although he was braggadocious, he would be humbled and become compassionate and would give his life up for his own flocks like Jesus before him. And so Jesus saw Simeon and renamed him Peter, which means rock. Because on Peter and his confession and people like him would Christ build his church. Not on perfect people. Not on the educated. Not on the wealthy. Not on the impressive. He would take humbled and repentant sinners and build the greatest kingdom this world could ever know. Jesus saw Peter apocalyptically then. Not from our perspective of Peter, but from God's perspective on what He would do through Peter. And just as Peter gives two titles, 
he matches, or he, just as he gives two names, he matches it with two titles. On the one hand, he's a servant. He's like a deacon who, who follows Jesus and, and tries to, to live a life that's modeled after Jesus to, to treat others more important than himself. But simultaneously, Peter of all people, Peter is an apostle, a messenger who is deputized by God to have the authority to go and preach the message of Jesus' gospel in God's kingdom. Peter, on the one hand, an unlearned Galilean, was given the power to teach the Word of God made flesh. See, the rulers of Jerusalem in Acts saw Peter from a human perspective. He's just nothing but an uneducated country bumpkin. That's what we see when we look at Peter. But what God reveals is actually true about Peter. What He reveals apocalyptically that Peter is an apostolic father who helped establish the church of Jesus Christ. Peter, and Peter we see the fullness of human frailty and guiltiness, but we also see the fullness of God's grace and forgiveness. And here's the most amazing thing of all. Peter writes to these ancient Christians in verse 1b, and he writes to us modern ones as well, as those who have received a faith of equal uh, uh, who have received a faith equal to ours through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. In other words, just as God worked through a mess of a man like Peter, so will he work through our messy lives as well. The world may view you as unimportant or insignificant or insignificant or uninteresting or irrelevant or whatever, but Peter's apocalypse reveals to you that God views you of equal faith to the apostles and of the same righteousness uh, and justification of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now how's that for self-esteem? Peter says that you are of the same faith of the apostles and your righteousness and justification before this world is the same as Jesus, the Son of God. That is a good... Hey, that makes me feel better <laughs> to have that identity proclaimed over me than anything the world could tell me. And so in verse 2, Peter's able to open his letter with a double blessing with which he closed his last letter. Peter's on death row here. He's facing the, the metaphorical shooting gallery in just a moment. He is facing a guillotine. And yet he's able... Last time he said, peace to y'all who are in Christ. But here he opens with grace and peace multiplied to y'all. No, although he's facing his death, he is able to give more freely the blessings of God than ever before. How? Through the intimate and personal and healing and hopeful apocalyptic knowledge of Jesus our Lord. And so, this morning, as we draw to a close, I want to remind you that the course we've charted for this summer through 2 Peter, with all its quirks and oddities, is looking to how we share in God's life. Not only with Peter and with others, but we share in God's life with God. How we are participants and partakers together 
and His divine nature. And I want to say here this morning, we are about to be partakers and participants in that divine nature when we come to this table. When we come to the Lord's Supper table that Jesus ordained that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we would be partakers of His gracious sacrifice on the cross for us and for our salvation. Whenever we come to this table, we are entering into the strange new world of the Bible where simultaneously we are stepping back into the past, partaking of a Passover feast where we recall and remember that God is the kind of God that delivers people from slavery to sin and death and whatever world empire is in charge at the moment. We step into that reality, but we also step forward into the future where we celebrate a marriage supper of the Lamb that anticipates how God in Christ is making all things new. And so, Christian, all I can say to you this morning in closing, what God is apocalyptically revealing here at this table is to come and to share and the knowledge of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, multiply grace and peace to us in this time of testimony and at this table and our creeds and our confessions. For it's in Jesus' name, Your Son and our Lord, we pray now and forever. Amen.